0: Good evening, Grace Church. It is a privilege to be with you once again this evening for our part two of the book of Zephaniah. Uh, If you were here last week, uh, you'll remember that we saw out of Zephaniah chapter one that Yahweh's wrath is going to reach every corner of the globe and going to exterminate every single inhabitant of the world. It will be awful. It will be horrendous. Uh, Yahweh's wrath is unbearable, and that is because God hates sin. He will punish every single sinner with the fire of his anger, and so he calls us to flee from his wrath. He warns us. The problem is, since Yahweh is an all-powerful and everywhere present judge, we can't get away from him. And that means that the only way to get away from God's wrath is to flee to him, to flee to Yahweh. Providentially, the prophet Zephaniah would constantly be reminding the people of this fact because the name Zephaniah in Hebrew means hidden by Yahweh and reflects this reality that to flee from Yahweh's wrath, we need to find refuge in Yahweh himself, which is obviously one of the main themes of scripture. Psalm 2 says, Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So don't run away from Yahweh. That's impossible. Run to Yahweh. And our text tonight in Zephaniah 2 is going to continue in this same theme of Yahweh's wrath against the nations. In an introduction, I'd like to invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 63. A parallel passage that speaks of Yahweh's wrath against the nations. Isaiah chapter 63. Isaiah writes, Who is this who comes from Edom, with garments of glowing colors from Bozrah? This one who is majestic in his clothing, marching in the greatness of his power? Yahweh responds, It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your clothing red, and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the wine trough alone. From the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, and their lifeblood sprinkled on my garments and stained all my clothes. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. I looked, and there was no one to help, and I was astonished that there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me, and my wrath upheld me. I trod down the peoples in my anger and made them drunk in my wrath, and I brought down their lifeblood. To the earth. Once again, we need to remind ourselves that this is our God. This is the God that we worship. This is Yahweh's description of himself. And I think it's especially helpful for us who are Christians who live on this side of the cross to remind ourselves of this fact. So often, those of us who are in Christ, we forget about God's wrath because we never experience it. All we know of God, those of us who are in Christ, all we know of God is grace and love and compassion, but we must never forget who God is. We worship him when we understand all of his perfections, all of his attributes, because he is most glorious just the way that he is. So however uncomfortable it makes us feel, we need to consider and contemplate that our God is a God of vengeance. The imagery here that Isaiah gives us of Yahweh tossing sinners into this wine trough and stomping them like grapes until their blood has splattered all of his garments and all of his clothes are red. You say, again, like, we're Christians, we're this side of the cross, why, why talk about this? Why, why think about this? Well, first, so a holy fear might grip us. This is who our God is. This is what he has power to do. This is what he will do to every sinner. But also, as Christians, it's only when we understand the depth of God's wrath that our gratitude grows. When we consider that we who justly and rightly lay in Yahweh's winepress, that very last moment before Yahweh's foot of justice came down to crush us, Jesus pushed us aside and was trodden down in our place. And we stand in front of him with his blood staining, being splattered all over our faces and closed, astonished, amazed that he would take our place, that he would bear the wrath of God on our behalf. On our behalf. How, how could we not worship when we understand the full fury of the wrath of our God? How could we not appreciate what Christ has done when we behold this crushed land and that 's what I want to try to help us do tonight is just grow in our desire to worship God, to worship our Savior, Father, Son, and Spirit, full of vengeance, full of mercy we 're going to look at two more reasons to worship this God of vengeance first. We'll see Yahweh takes vengeance against the nations, and then we'll see that he takes vengeance against his people. We're starting in verse 4 of chapter 2, Zephaniah 2, verse 4. Just to give us a big picture of what's going to go on in the rest of chapter 2, God's going to look to the four corners of the compass of the globe. And speak about taking vengeance upon all of Israel's enemies. First we'll look west to the Philistines. Then east to the Moabites and the Ammonites. Then south to Ethiopia. And then north to Assyria. So verse 4. Gaza will be forsaken. Ashkelon a desolation. Ashdod will be driven out at noon. And Ekron will be uprooted. First you'll notice that word for or because. and links us back to chapter 2 verse 3 where God says, seek Yahweh, flee Yahweh's wrath. Why? Well, verse 4, because if you don't, you will all be destroyed. He begins with the the Philistines. They're people of the sea. They dwelled on the coast of the Mediterranean. Israel should have wiped them out by this point, but they did not. And so God is now promising to defeat them and defeat them easily. It says, Ashdod will be driven out at noon. Uh, probably referring to just how easy it's going to be for God, like defeat the Philistines should be done by lunch, not something that's hard for God. Verse five: Woe to the inhabitants of the seacoast, the nation of the Carthites! The word of Yahweh is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will make you perish, so that there will be no inhabitant. Woe is this idea of the fact that we need to lament and mourn for them because they're about to perish. Carathites probably refers to the fact that the Philistines emigrated from the island of Crete. Jeremiah 47, 4 might speak of this. The interesting thing to me is this fact that the author puts together the, the words Canaan and perish together there. Because it's in the book of Deuteronomy and the conquest that God commands the Israelites to cause every inhabitant of Canaan to perish to leave no survivors. But you remember when the Israelites came into the land, they left them all there. And so now God is fulfilling what he had asked Israel to do. 800 years later, Yahweh is going to do it himself. Verse 6, the seacoast will be pastures with caves for shepherds and folds for flocks. Which is ironic because the Philistines were the ones that boasted in their technological advances. They had ships and forges. And now... Their entire civilization, civilization would be destroyed. It's all going to be torn down and inhabited by animals. Verse 7, the coast will be for the remnant of the house of Judah. They will feed upon it. In the houses of Ashkelon, they will lie down at evening. For Yahweh, their God, will take care of them and restore their fortune. Now, if we'd been reading from Zephaniah one, this verse would just be a shock. right? Because if you remember last week... Zephaniah 1 says God's wiping it all out. He's leaving no survivors. He's going to kill everyone. Everyone deserves to die. It's global destruction. No inhabitants left on the face of the earth. Then we got this glimmer of hope in chapter 2, verse 3. Seek Yahweh. And we thought, well, okay, maybe someone could survive. And now, verse 7, after God destroys the Philistines... The remnant of the house of Judah is going to be there. So we learn for the first time in Zephaniah that yes, some will seek Yahweh. Some will find refuge in him. Some will survive. Some will remain. God's wiping the earth clean, yes, but he's doing it for a reason. He's doing it to preserve a remnant and establish them there in safety. So the purpose of the day of Yahweh, this day of wrath, is not just destruction. Yahweh is judging the wicked, but he's doing it for his remnant, to restore their fortune, to give them an inheritance. So the day of Yahweh's vengeance against sinners also is going to give birth to a day of salvation for the remnant. This word remnant implies both things. It implies both judgment and salvation. Judgment came... And some remained. And not just survived, they're blessed. Look at verse 7. It says, Yahweh will care for them, which is a really interesting verb choice. Uh, literally, the, the word in Hebrew means to visit. It's a really, really hard verb to translate because, in some cases, it means bless, and in some cases, it means punishment. You remember in Genesis, God visits Sarah in order to bless her. And then in Exodus, God visits the iniquity. Of the fathers upon the children of the third and fourth generation. The three times that it's used in Zephaniah chapter 1, this word, every time it's translated punish. And it it should be rightly. Why? Because every time Yahweh visits a sinner, what happens? Every time Yahweh visits a sinner, it's unspeakably terrible. It's all wrath and all judgment, all vengeance, all death, all hell. Because the sinner deserves it. And Yahweh is furious with sinners. Psalm 5.5 5 states, If you're a sinner, the last person you want to visit from is Yahweh. But now, amazingly, Yahweh visits this remnant and he restores their fortune. So Lord Yahweh, in all of his blazing holiness, who hates sin, who hates sinners, he visits this remnant and he blesses them. How is that possible? Well, he doesn't tell us yet. He's going to get there in chapter 3, verse 9, Lord willing, we'll see it next week. But obviously, Yahweh is going to have to purify and forgive and change this remnant to be holy like he's holy in order for him to bless them. That uh, last phrase as well, to restore their fortune, we'll look at next week. It's the last verse of the book of Zephaniah. Suffice it to say, there's sort of near-far fulfillment with this restoration as well. After being in the Babylonian exile for 70 years, the Israelites will return to the land, but the full restoration of Israel won't happen until the end times. Remember in Romans eleven twenty six 26, when all Israel is saved. So Zephaniah 1, most of the Israelites will perish on Yahweh's day. Some will remain. True Israel will believe. The remnant will trust in Christ and will be saved. Okay, so that's what God's going to do to the west of Israel, to the Philistines. Now we look east. Verse 8, I have heard the reproach of Moab. The revilings of the sons of Ammon, with which they have reproached my people and magnified themselves against their territory. Moab and Ammon are both nations that have a really dark history. You can read it in Genesis chapter 19, the product of this incestual relationship between Lot and his daughters. They're constantly a thorn in Israel's side. Balak, you remember the Moabite king, he hires Balaam to curse Israel. At that time, God pronounced the extermination of Moab in Numbers 24. But now it's finally going to happen. God's going to wipe out the Moabites and the Ammonites, which obviously he did. Right? You don't hear about Moabites or Ammonites today. And the reason he's going to wipe them out, he says, is that they pridefully magnified themselves And made fun of the people of God. They reviled their cousins. And notice how personally Yahweh takes this. He changes to the first person pronoun. He says, I have heard. I've heard you making fun of my people. It's kind of like what Jesus says to Saul. On the road to Damascus. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? God always takes persecution of his people personally. Personally. Remember, Edom was destroyed for the very same sin, for gloating over Judah's pain. Yahweh is a God of vengeance. He does not tolerate that. Notice verse 9. Therefore, as I live, declares Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, surely Moab will be like Sodom and the sons of Ammon, like Gomorrah, a place possessed by nettles and salt pits and a perpetual desolation. Again, the first person. As I live, it's like God is swearing. I will do it. He calls himself Yahweh of hosts, captain of the armies of heaven. (laughs) What chance does Moab have against the myriad of angel warriors that God has at his disposal? Do you remember what Yahweh did with just two angels to Sodom and Gomorrah? Moab and Ammon will be completely destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah. They'll be left a desert where nothing lives but nettles. But then once again, the remnant, the remnant of my people will plunder them. The remainder of my nation will inherit them. Which is interesting because up until this point, Israel had not taken the land of Moab and Ammon. It was included in the Abrahamic covenant, but never possessed. Yahweh says Israel will possess it in the future. Verse 10, we're reminded again of Moab and Ammon's sin. This they will have in return for their pride because they have reproached and magnified themselves against the people of Yahweh of hosts. God's going to take vengeance because they have insulted and reproached his people. Yahweh is a jealous God with a jealous love for his own. And this is good for Yahweh's people. This is best. Um, I, I consider myself a pretty mellow person. I know that I've been preaching the last couple of weeks on the wrath of God. But outside of the pulpit, I'm a Mennonite, we're peacemakers, we're pretty chill. But if you insult my wife, there is a rage that wells up within me that I didn't know I had before I got married. And all of you husbands, you understand this. You do not want to cross Yahweh's bride. His name is jealous, and he is omnipotent. And this should cause his bride, his remnant, to worship and to rest in his love. The jealousy of Yahweh grants security. It grants comfort. We are protected from everyone and everything that would do us harm. No enemy can touch us. Yahweh disciplines us for sure. But he does that for our good, to make us more like Christ. We are safe in the jealous love of Yahweh. Now notice verse 11. We look to the far future. Yahweh will be fearsome to them, for he will starve all the gods of the earth, and all the coastlands of the nations will bow down to him, everyone from his own place." This verse is just packed with theological truth. This is the the midpoint of this chapter of the four nations. Prophet looks forward to the far future and explains the why. Why is God doing this? God is judging the whole world so that all the gods of the nations will starve. And Yahweh is the only God left to worship. Because he's the only God that exists. And I I love this sarcasm that Yahweh is going to starve all the gods. The point is that after God kills all the idolaters... (laughs) There's going to be no one left to feed these false gods, right? Part of idol worship was this sacrificing of animals and then setting out that food in front of the idol who supposedly needed it. The pagan gods depended upon humans to feed them. Obviously, Yahweh doesn't need that. Psalm 50, God says he doesn't need sacrifices. He says, if I was hungry, I wouldn't tell you. This whole world is mine says in verse 13, shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats? No. But the really interesting thing in this verse is the verse starts with this idea that Yahweh will be fearsome. He will terrify the nations. He will evoke their fear. We see this throughout the minor prophets, right? Malachi 1, Yahweh is a great king and he will be feared among the nations. But it's interesting because, again, if we're just thinking about chapter 1, we might think the idea is that Yahweh is going to obliterate everyone, he's going to kill everyone, and that's why they're going to be afraid, because he's wiping them out. But if you look again at the end of verse 11, we see that there's people from every nation of the world who's going to bow down to Yahweh from their own place. And I don't think this is a Philippians 2 idea that God's going to force these people to get on their knees and bow down in judgment. Because that's not where Zephaniah is heading. Zephaniah is heading to chapter 3 where he's going to say that Yahweh is changing a remnant that is going to worship him from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. This speaks of the salvation of the nation. And so this fear of Yahweh actually produces two different outcomes. Everyone should be afraid of Yahweh. Everyone is afraid. But some are terrified and run away from Yahweh and are destroyed. And some are so terrified of Yahweh, they run to him. And are saved from their sin, Jew and Gentile alike. God is saving Israel and the nations who will be bowing down to him from their lands. You say, wait, Josiah, I thought salvation of the Gentiles was was not shown in the Old Testament, that it was a mystery only in the New Testament. Well, it's true that the church is not fully revealed, as Ephesians 3 says, in the Old Testament. But the salvation of the nations is all over the Old Testament. Starting with the Abrahamic covenant, right? It's through Abraham that all the nations of the world will be blessed. Listen to Isaiah 49. I love this verse. Isaiah 49, 6. The father is speaking to his son, And he says, it is too small of a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to cause the preserved ones of Israel to return. I will also give you as a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. The father says, son, son, you are too great of a savior to just redeem Israel. You're going to redeem the whole world, every tribe and tongue and nation. People are going to worship you throughout the entire world. I mean, take a look around. God is fulfilling this prophecy right now among us. That's west, east, south. Really short to the point. Verse 12, you also, O Ethiopians, will be slain by my sword. Period. Ethiopians there are Cushites. In some translations, we're a nation just south of Egypt. The word that caught my attention here is the word my Yahweh says, Ethiopia, you will be slain by my sword. Interesting, because historically, we know the Ethiopians, the Egyptians, they were all destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians. But we're reminded of God's sovereignty. The Babylonians were a sword in Yahweh's hand. He's sovereign over the nations. He causes nations to rise and fall for his good purposes. Which is going to be the same thing that's true in verse 13, as we now look north to Assyria right? Yahweh had raised up Assyria to discipline Israel. But Assyria is also responsible for their sin. God is sovereign. Man is responsible. And so now God is going to judge Assyria. This beautiful mystery and truth that God is sovereign and we're responsible, In layman's terms, God determines everything and God made me do. It's never an excuse for our sin. So Israel's sinned against by Assyria. Now God's going to judge Assyria. Look to verse 13. He will stretch out his hand against the north and cause Assyria to perish. He will make Nineveh a desolation, parched like the wilderness. We've already studied Nahum in this series, so I won't go into a lot of detail. Right, This is fulfilled in 612 BC when Babylon destroys Nineveh. It's kind of a, Irony, the way he talks, the way he talks about it, that they're going to be parched like the wilderness, because the, the Tigris River ran right beside Nineveh, and God caused the river to swell, the walls of Nineveh fell, and this city that has existed from the times of Genesis chapter 10 falls. The remaining Assyrian army flees to the west, the Babylonians killed them in 605 at Carchemish. Leaving Nineveh, Nineveh completely desolate. Verse fourteen: Flocks will lie down in her midst; all the beasts of the nations, both the pelican, and the hedgehog, will lodge in the tops of her pillars. Their voice will sing in the window. Ruins will be on the threshold, for he has laid bare the cedar work. Once again, everyone's dead, so the buildings are now occupied by animals. Once again, this is near judgment. This is going to happen very soon. We know it is because there's ruins that are left. We know that in the great tribulation, the end times, God's not going to leave even the ruins. Zephaniah 1.3. Notice verse 15. This is the exultant city which inhabits securely, who says in her heart, I am and there is no one besides me. He <laughs> said, whoa. God's not going to let them slide for that one. There is one person who lays claim to that declaration, how she has become an object of horror, a resting place for beasts. Everyone who passes by her will hiss and wave his hand in contempt. Now, to just remind you a little bit of the context of the city of Nineveh, right? Nineveh was unassailable, completely impenetrable in human terms. One commentator states, in addition to an extensive outer wall, there was an inner wall with an eight-mile circumference. The wall was 100 feet high, 10 stories, 50 feet wide. That's nearly triple the Great Wall of China. In addition, the Tigris River provided a natural moat around the walls of the city. and Between the two walls was enough farmland to support the huge population. No other city even came close. So Yahweh destroys her, this nation that claimed, I am and there is no one besides me. Sounds almost like Isaiah 45, doesn't it? I am Yahweh. There is no other besides me. There is no God. God opposes the proud. He tears down the city. And the whole world rejoiced at her destruction. Nahum 3.19 says the same thing. All who heard the report of you will clap their hands. So Yahweh takes vengeance against the nations. So, well, well what's, what's Zephaniah's point? Like, what's, what's his application? Well, we're going to get there in a little bit, but just peek ahead to verse 8 of chapter 3, Zephaniah 3.8, to see where Zephaniah is taking us. He says, therefore, wait for me. Wait for me. God looks to his remnant and he says, be patient. My vengeance is coming. Your salvation is nigh. Your fortune, your inheritance is coming soon. Wait and worship. I'm going to destroy the Philistines, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Ethiopians, the Assyrians. Just wait for me. Just trust me. Now, we are persecuted so little here in America that some of these concepts are really hard to to understand. That that Yahweh's vengeance against our enemies would be a comfort to us is a very foreign thought to us. But Yahweh's vengeance against sinners ought to be life-altering for us. It completely liberates us from any anger, from any hate against this world. Just, just think about it. Imagine if, if Crystal and I are in a store. We're speaking to a woman who's an unbeliever. Crystal starts to share the gospel with her, invite her to church. And this lady, she gets angry. She starts insulting her. We finish paying. We get into our cars. We're in the parking lot. And there's a lady again. She cuts us off and honks the horn and screams at us. What is our natural sinful tendency? Well, to get angry back. To get frustrated. To get mad at them. But what if God gave us a glimpse of the future like he does for Israel here? What if we saw that right after that lady cut us off, she went out into the street and a semi came. And slammed into her, and the woman died in a fiery explosion. I would hope that if you could foresee that, if you knew that that was going to happen in fifteen seconds after she insulted you, I would hope that instead of anger, you would feel pity. Right, the unbeliever who hurts you is going to hell forever. If someone insults my wife, my words very well could be, don't be afraid of me. Do you know who her dad is? Because you've just insulted the daughter of Yahweh. And he's going to tear you limb from limb if you don't repent. And after he kills you, he's going to give you a resurrected immortal body so he can throw you in hell forever. Forever. To heap his wrath upon you. And when we understand that. When we understand God's vengeance. What is our response? To wait. And to worship. In silent awe. To know that our God's name. Is jealous. Our response is to pity the nations. Who don't believe. To pray for them. Father. Forgive them. They do not know what they do. They do not know what's coming for them. Forgive them. Yahweh's vengeance frees us of all need for payback, all need for anger and hate, and frees us just to worship and wait for the, gut, for the judge of all the world to do what's right. Second point. We worship God because of his vengeance against his people, against unbelieving Israel. Notice is verse 1 of chapter 3. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressive city. Same woe is in chapter 2, verse 5, for the nations. Notice the woe is to a city that is rebellious, defiled, and oppressive. So what city is he talking about? Right, especially if you think about the fact that the chapter divisions are not original. In the previous verse in chapter 2, verse 15, the her referred to Nineveh. So we might be thinking the oppressive city here is Nineveh, but it's not. There's a shift here. Zephaniah is speaking of Jerusalem. How do we know that? Well, because in verse 2, it says that her God is Yahweh. In verse 4, it talks about the Torah. In verse 5, Yahweh is righteous within her. In verse 11, she's referred to as Yahweh's holy mountain. In verse 14, the daughter of Yahweh is the one who remains in this city. So what's going on? We have this nearly imperceptible transition between God talking about Nineveh and God talking about Jerusalem. Why? Because they're like the same city to God. Jerusalem is just as wicked and terrible as Nineveh. Same thing that Amos does in Amos 1 and 2 where he puts Judah in the list of all these wicked nations because that's what they're like. He says they're rebellious. Right, Israel throughout the Bible are a stiff-necked, rebellious people. They're defiled, like in Isaiah 59. The people of Israel defiled their hands with blood. Oppressive speaks of their mistreatment of the poor and needy. So verse 2, it says, She, that is Jerusalem, did not listen to any voice, did not receive discipline, did not trust in Yahweh, did not draw near to her God. Right? Israel had Yahweh as her God. She received Yahweh's voice, his discipline, but Judah was obstinate, stiff-necked. In fact, the, the phrase in Yahweh is fronted in Hebrew. It's first to highlight this fact that it's in Yahweh they did not trust. In Yahweh, in God, she did not draw near. I mean, had Yahweh ever given Judah a reason not to trust him? I'm reminded of the Psalms so often, just reasons upon reasons extol the worth of Yahweh, listing so many reasons to trust him. But they would not. They would not draw near. They would not worship. Obviously, it's because the only way we can draw near to God as sinners is through sacrifice. That's why the book of Hebrews says that we draw near to God through the perfect sacrifice of Christ. Israel would not draw near. Verse 3, her princes in her midst are roaring lions, her judges are wolves at evening. They leave nothing to gnaw on for the morning. The leading class, the rulers, they devoured the people like the Pharisees and Luke 21, who devour widows' houses until they are left desolate with nothing and destitute poverty. Verse 4, her prophets are reckless, treacherous men. Her priests have profaned the sanctuary. They've done violence to the law. Jeremiah twenty three thirty two uses this term reckless to speak of false prophets who would arrogantly pass off their own words as Yahweh's words. They're treacherous and not to be trusted these pagan priests as we saw in chapter 1 profaned god's temple and did violence to the torah to the law it's such imagery there god's word is often personified in scripture it's like the the israelites are casting a knife into yahweh's word doing violence to it verse 5 yahweh is righteous in their midst he will do no injustice Every morning he brings his justice to light. He does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. In contrast to his evil people, Yahweh remains untouched by their filthiness. He remains righteous and faithful. He does no injustice. He sheds his light every morning in Jerusalem, but Jerusalem's just too far gone. Right? Normally, what happens if someone's sinning in the dark and someone turns on the lights? Shame, they try to hide it. Not Judah, not Judah. God sheds light on their sin every morning and they feel nothing. The unjust knows no shame. Now verse six, so I've cut off nations. Their corner towers are desolate. I've made their streets a waste with no one passing by. Their cities are laid waste without a man, without an inhabitant. Now this is interesting, that last phrase, without an inhabitant, it calls us back to chapter 2, verse 5, where God promised to wipe out all of Israel's enemies. And God is prophetically looking toward that time when it's happened. God has destroyed the Philistines. He's destroyed the Moabites and Ammonites. He's destroyed the Ethiopians. He's destroyed the Assyrians. He's made their cities desolate. He's laid waste to their corner towers. All these places, right, they were all destroyed before Jerusalem. So you would think, you would think, verse 7, I said, surely you will fear me after all these things that I've done. After fulfilling my prophecies, showing the trustworthiness of my word. Receive discipline, discipline so your abode would not be cut off according to all that I've appointed concerning her. I right? says, surely she's going to fear me after this. Surely they'll receive my discipline and not be cut off. Surely. They won't have to receive what's coming for her, all that's appointed. God warns out of love and and pleads. But, last phrase of verse 7, but they were eager to corrupt all their deeds. They not only refused, they were eager. Literally in Hebrew, they woke up early to do evil. It's like like when you're going to do something you really, really want to do tomorrow. Tomorrow. And you set your alarm for 7 a.m. And then you wake up when? You wake up at 6.30 without the alarm because you're so excited to do it. You wake up early to do it. Israel loved their sins so much they woke up early to do it. They wouldn't listen to God. And I pray that there's no one like that here at Grace Church. We should be the exact opposite. Love his instruction. Love his discipline. Let's make sure we rise up early to worship him, to extol his greatness. Let's be a people eager to wait for Yahweh. Verse 8, therefore, wait for me, declares Yahweh, for the day when I rise up as a witness. Indeed, my judgment is to assemble nations, to gather kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger. For all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. A couple quick notes. Some of your Bibles in the second line say that Yahweh is going to rise up to seize the prey. It's kind of a textual question there. I don't think it affects the meaning of the verse at all. The point is that God God's going to gather up all the nations of the world. going to gather up all the sinners of the world and pour out his burning anger upon them. He's going to devour them with the fire of his zeal. Every sinner will be punished. And this should cause unbelievers to be terrified, to fear God's wrath and to escape his hell by asking his forgiveness, by pleading with him to to cleanse them. But notice again in this section, God's not talking so much about his wrath for the benefit of the unbeliever. He's speaking directly to his remnant. He tells his remnant, wait for me. Wait in worship as I take vengeance, as I pour out my wrath. Because when we consider God's wrath, our worship increases. Probably the text that most explicitly teaches this is in Romans chapter 9, verse 22. If you want to turn real quickly. Romans chapter 9, verse 22. This amazing passage speaking on God's election. Paul says, What if God, wanting to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath having been prepared for destruction? And here's the question why? Why did God do that? Why did God want to demonstrate his wrath? Well, we get the purpose clause in verse 23. In order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. Which he prepared beforehand for glory. Yahweh pours out his wrath on sinners. To magnify the mercy that he has on you. And on me. Because we understand mercy most. When we best understand what we were spared from. We worship God best when we clearly see what we deserve. It magnifies our worship, our gratitude, our thankfulness. But this leaves us with, with sort of the, the million dollar question that Zephaniah has not answered yet: How can God do this? Like, why is it okay for God to bless this remnant, this people that's for just as sinful as? The Israelites. Why can God do this with us? And, and yet judges every other sinner. And so as a conclusion tonight, I, I'd like to just kind of peek into this next session section of Zephaniah in verses 9 through 13. We'll, we'll study it next week. But I just kind of want to give you a taste of what's coming. Because notice in verse 9 there, we get the why. How it is that we can be spared. He says, for then I will change them to peoples with purified lips that all of them, the whole remnant, may call on the name of Yahweh. So why is it? Why is it that you called out on the name of Yahweh? Why is it that you flee his wrath and you found refuge in Yahweh? It's because Yahweh said, I will change you. I will purify your lips. It's because salvation is a work of Yahweh. He plucked us out of the fire. If you escape Yahweh's wrath, it's not because of you. It's not because you are really smart or you were really good. It's because you were chosen by him and you were changed by him. This is the promise of regeneration, the promise of the new birth. He says he's going to change them to a people of purified lips. A purified lip is a reflection of a purified heart. If someone doesn't sin in what they say, they're a perfect man. According to James chapter 3. Now promises to take out our hearts of stone and change us. Verse 11. In that day you will feel no shame because of all your deeds by which you have transgressed against me. So we're talking about sinners. But now. They're sinners that have no shame, which is interesting. It's ironic, right? Because Judah was supposed to feel shame for their sin, but they didn't. They were a nation without shame that should have felt shame. But now the remnant feels no shame because they have no sin to be ashamed of because Yahweh has purified them. He's forgiven them. He's made them righteous. All sin is going to be gone from Yahweh's kingdom. He says, I'm going to remove your proud exulting ones and cause to remain in your midst only a lowly and poor people who takes refuge in Yahweh. And it's the poor in spirit that enter the kingdom who know they need God's righteousness, and who receive it. Verse 13, the remnant of Israel will do no injustice and speak no falsehood, nor will a deceitful tongue be found in their mouths. What what an amazing, extraordinary statement that the remnant will do no injustice. That phrase should catch your, your eye because remember in Zephaniah 3, 5, It's Yahweh who will do no injustice. But now it's Yahweh's remnant that will do no injustice. In other words, Yahweh's remnant is now like Yahweh. Yahweh's remnant is now holy like Yahweh. That is, we're not just talking about forgiveness here. We're talking about total transformation, total sanctification. The remnant will be completely sinless, completely holy like Yahweh. And this is why it's so necessary that Yahweh pours out his wrath against sin. Because if we're going to become like Yahweh, we need to see him for all that he is in all of his attributes. Just apply apply a little bit of New Testament soteriology to this idea. You you understand, right, 2 Corinthians 3.18, that we're transformed into Christ's glory, from glory to glory, as we behold him. Right When you see his compassion, the Holy Spirit makes you compassionate. When you see his justice, the Holy Spirit makes you more just. 1 John 3, 2, when we see Christ as he is, it's then that we'll be like him. So if we're going to be made like Jesus in all his character, we have to see all his character. All of his love, all of his compassion, but all of his wrath and his holiness as well. We have to wait and witness and worship God's wrath against sin so that the Spirit can transform us into that image. You say, wait a second, Josiah. You're telling me that I want to be full of wrath like Yahweh is? Well, obviously you're not going to be a judge. You're not going to pour out wrath against anyone. That's why vengeance is Yahweh's. But you better hate sin like Yahweh hates sin. That's what we're learning in Zephaniah. How much Yahweh hates sin. Revelation 6, it's the wrath of the Lamb that's intolerable. Hear this, you will never stop sinning until you hate sin like Yahweh hates sin. And we need to behold and witness and wait and watch Yahweh take vengeance on sin. And long for and yearn to be like him in his hatred for sin. And so then that we too will do no injustice. But if you, you're hearing the sermon again, that's all about God's wrath and his justice and holiness, and you don't like it. If you wish he were different, if you think you could fashion a better God, more loving, more accepting, then you cannot worship Yahweh. Because worshipping Yahweh is adoring him for who he is. Exactly as he is. Worshipping God is longing to be like him. In all his character, we should long to be like God in every way that we can. Only then when we're perfect like him will we be able to dwell with him for all eternity. Lord willing, that is what we will see next week. Where Zephaniah tells us, sing with joy, the King of Israel, Yahweh, is in your midst. What a day that will be. Sinless, forgiven, enabled to worship God perfectly. Let's pray. Father, we echo the hymn writer's desire that you would just not, that you would be to us exactly who you are, not be to me, save that thou art. We worship you for all your perfections, all your love, all your compassion, all your mercy, and all your justice, and all your holiness. And We do pray this day, that you would teach us to hate sin like you hate it, that you would take us to the cross, to Gethsemane, and see your wrath poured out upon your Son, and we would learn to loathe our sin and long to be like you in every way. Thank you that he not only died but rose again to give us hope and joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.